0: Want to take a moment and wish our Chinese friends a happy new year. Uh, today is happy new year. One of the um, one of the best blessings I believe of our church this is the diversity that we have, and it's a it's a huge blessing. I don't know if you know this. We have a huge Chinese fellowship that that is a part of this church. Uh, we translate all of our services into Mandarin every Sunday. Uh, someone's up there right now translating. Um, This, I'm not sure who it is. They're standing in the window back there. I wonder what they're even saying at this very moment as I'm waving at them (laughs) as they're doing that. But, uh, you know, so, and I think particular, you know, my plan was to come up here and wish a happy new year to our Chinese friends, but especially what happened last night in Monterey Park with that mass shooting. I think it's even more important. Man, I gotta tell you, in, in Revelation, it paints a picture of the kingdom of God. Every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every language coming together to worship God together. Man, if there is a place where unity and safety ought to be possible, it ought to be God's people and God's home on Sunday. So you take a moment and pray. Pray with me. Uh, not just for our Chinese community, but for those families um, that, are, that are devastated today. Let's pray. Jesus, again, I we are here because we believe in your power. We are here because we are either celebrating you or searching for you. So, God, we come here this morning grateful for what you have provided for us, a safe place for us to come together. Broken people united purely on your mercy by your grace. God, we do, A, thank you for the Chinese community that we have in our city, uh, in our community, and within our church. God, we pray you bless them, Continue to grow them and guide them and use them for your glory. God, we also pray for those families devastated by the violence last night. God, we we ask for your peace that's beyond human comprehension. God, for your healing and protection. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so now at this point I'm taking this off for no other reason than it gets cooking in here. I don't know about you, but... Um, so we're in the middle of the book of Acts. You know what I love, I think, about the book of Acts? It really has become a, a sort of a testimony of God's work and God's power through a myriad of different people, but, but primarily for the last couple of weeks for, for the, through the life of the apostle Paul. And uh, Pastor Jeff and I lead a group on Wednesday nights. We meet here in this room, and we go through our study guide, and we just talk about sermon, uh, the sermon notes and what questions actually came up in your mind about the sermon or, or just through life and through your study. And so we gather in here, and this last Wednesday, we began to talk about the power of testimonies and how important testimonies are. And I was thinking this week how blessed I am to have a number of testimonies that have been given to me. One was from my great-grandmother. My great-grandmother was uh, just an amazing lady, one of the first licensed medical doctors uh, in the U.S., and she took that skill set and went to minister to people in Central Africa, her and my great-grandfather, and and they started a seminary that's still there to this day. And my grandmother or my great-grandmother really wanted to pass on to her children and to her grandchildren a testimony of God's goodness And God's work through a woman like her, all that God's been able to accomplish so near the end of her life, she wrote a testimony and it was put in the form of a book. It's this book. It's called Stranger Than Fiction by Dr. Florence Gribble. Um, My grandmother wrote her testimony out, great-grandmother. So the generations to follow would have a testimony of God's goodness and power at work through ordinary people. That message wasn't lost on my grandmother then, her daughter, and so my grandmother met my grandfather at Moody Bible Institute and they picked up their lives and they went to Central Africa and had this tremendous ministry Uh, and near the end of my grandmother's life, she decided to write out her testimony to make sure that her children and her grandchildren would have a model to follow that they would have some sort of experience and a reminder of God's goodness and faithfulness and power of what he was able to do through ordinary people and accomplish for his glory, his provision, his faithfulness in the midst of good times and bad times. So she wrote out her testimony. It's called Live in God's Kindness by Marguerite Dunning. You know, these two books serve as a reminder of the power of testimony They're here to encourage us, to model for us, and to remind us of everything that God has done and will still do in your life and in my life. I think that's why I like the book of Acts, because in a way it serves as a testimony, as an example and a reminder, as as a model for us to follow. In particular, the last half of the book of Acts were were really following the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. There was more people than just Paul serving Jesus. Jesus was doing amazing things through elders, through teachers, through parents. God was doing amazing things. The Apostle Paul is not the only instrument of God at this time. And yet, Acts, the author of Acts, through the power of God, chose to isolate out the Apostle Paul. So he would have a testimony, a witness of everything God can do and will do through ordinary people and give us a model to follow. And the last couple of weeks, we've been following Paul. Paul finished his third missionary journey knowing that as he was traveling towards Jerusalem, that he would be facing difficulties, trials, and persecution. And yet Paul continued to move forward in their understanding that this is what God had for him. Paul understood that the Christian life wasn't promised to be easy, that we weren't promised continual blessing and comfort and simplicity. What we we're promised is never-ending mercy and grace and the power of God being at work in our lives. And we'd have communion with God both here and throughout eternity. So Paul got to Jerusalem, and he faced exactly what he, what he believed he would. He would. It wasn't wasn't even a week. And he found himself amidst a riot in the middle of the temple. The Roman guards had to come in and save him. But still as they're bringing him to safety, he was likely bloodied and beaten. Paul still wanted to give a testimony helping people see Jesus as he did. And that riled him up. The guards had to save him again. So then Paul found himself before the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of that group. And he gave testimony again. And the Roman guards had to go in and save his life again. Because of the continued threat to his life. Where we left last week was Paul traveled to Caesarea, but not as a prisoner, more like a king surrounded by Roman guards. There's this group of people that swore to kill him before they ever ate again. So we finished last week with them still starving, them still not eating. Meanwhile, Paul isn't in prison. He's in the official office of the governor, a sort of an Airbnb. Great food, house freedoms, a police escort preparing and waiting to meet the governor. And that's where we pick up our story. If you have your Bibles, you can join me in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 24. Book of Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. If it takes you a little bit to find out, it's okay. Just keep flipping pages. You'll look very spiritual. Everyone will assume you know what you're doing. So just keep flipping. Get to the New Testament. Keep flipping around. You'll find it. Acts chapter 24. We're going to begin in verse 1. And in Acts chapter 24, what we're going to get is continuing to see the model and testimony of Paul. But in the model and testimony of Paul, we're going to get three reminders, three truths for our life as well. See, this isn't just a history book. This is a word of God used to, to continue to allow God to shape our lives as well. Here's how it starts. Acts chapter 24. Starting in verse one, it says, After five days, after five days of Paul being in the Airbnb there with the governor, waiting for everyone to come up. After five days of waiting, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders with an attorney named Tertullus, and they brought charges to the governor against Paul. Let me hit pause and help you understand some of the characters. Number one, they're waiting to meet with Felix. Felix is a governor of Judea. He was known as a brutal and firm-handed governor appointed by Rome to bring peace to this troubled region. The area of Judea Judea was going through a series of of riots and struggles. There's a place of violence. There's this group of assassins actually going through this time period at this time. And, And Felix was set up to try to bring peace to the area. Rome just wanted peace. And what Rome meant by peace is you do what we say. And there will be peace. So Felix was established to go in there. And he was very violent and brutal as he put down uprisings. Like he did not mess around. The other character is Ananias. And we went through Ananias last week. Ananias is the current high priest of the people of Jerusalem. But he wasn't a descendant of Aaron as he was supposed to be. He was appointed at Rome or was appointed by Rome. Ananias was, knew, was known to be, to be brutal. He was known for his corruption and his lust for power and his willingness to use violence, which was against scriptural mandates for that position. But Ananias didn't care. And so here you have this, this leader appointed by Roman Felix who was known for his violent and, and brutal, pushing down of any sort of violence or issues, and you have Ananias who's willing to do anything. So now you see Paul going in front of these two people. And you got to know things aren't going to go well for Paul. Ananias brings an attorney... We won't get into attorneys here. Um, we'll just leave it at that. Attorneys back then are like attorneys now. We love them. They're great. We have attorneys here at the church, so no harm. Uh, no offense. We'll just keep going. I'm digging myself a hole. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, right? Verse 2. After Paul had been summoned to Tullus, he's the attorney, began to accuse him, saying this to the governor. And I love this. Look at, listen to Tertullus. He says this, since we have through you attained much peace. Oh, Felix, you're so amazing. <laughs> and since by your, Paul's just got to be rolling his eyes at this point, right? I mean, we've been following Paul for 23 chapters. Paul just doesn't fake things well. You ever know someone like that? Like he just doesn't hide his emotions Since we have through you attained much peace, and since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge in this, in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. Felix, you're amazing. Look at everything you've done. Paul's got to be dying. But I don't want to worry you any further. I mean, I know you have a lot of work to do, Felix. Mr. Governor, you're incredible, so I beg you, grant us by your kindness a brief hearing. We don't want to take up much of your time. We know how important you are. Verse 5 For we have found this man a real pest. And a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes he even tried to desecrate the temple. And then we arrested him. Hit pause. Here's what Tertullus, an employee of Ananias, is coming before Felix. First things, Felix, hey, you're so amazing. I don't want to bother your time. We, we just want to bring something real simple to you. And they bring one main accusation against Paul. He's a pest. He's a no Man, he's like a plague to existence. Like he wasn't saying like, oh, he's just like a little kid who just won't quit hitting the horn. No, no, no. This guy needs to be exterminated. This guy is a plague within humanity. And then he gave three reasons why. Number one, he's a fellow who stirs up dissension. Hey, Paul, he's, he's guilty of treason. He's going around stirring up trouble, trying to bring people to revolt against Rome. Paul is an enemy of the state. That's what he's saying. And I just want to take a moment and just make sure everyone remembers everything we've seen about Paul now through verse 23 or chapter 23 and what we've learned through other books. Has Paul ever threatened Rome? Paul's teachings actually do the contrary, right? Paul's saying, listen, those leaders of Rome, speaking of, of Nero, who they called Bloody Nero, not a good guy, Paul's like, listen, you need to submit to them. They're the authority that God established. Submit to them until they command you to disobey a direct command of God. It was the Apostle Paul who said, as it pertains to you, whenever possible, be at peace with all people. Listen, I know there's a lot of kooks out there, Paul says. You be the peacemaker. I hated it when grandma said that to me. My sister would pick fights. I'd be so mad, and grandma would look at me and say, You be the peacemaker. Oh, why can't she be the peacemaker? Paul taught. Man, if Rome needed to worry about anyone, it wasn't Paul and his disciples. And Ananias and his attorney, they want to root out Paul. See, someone like Paul and someone like Ananias, a corrupt religious leader, they can't coexist. Ananias wants to get rid of Paul. He's a pest, he's a plague, he's a virus. He's going to spread throughout the region and take us all down, especially you, Rome. He's a, he stirs up dissension. He's trying to bring a revolt. He's trying to bring rebellion against Rome among all the Jews throughout the world. Keeps going. Look at the end of verse 5. And a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He's the front man. He's the poster boy. He's the captain. He's the head of this unapproved religious sect. In the time of Rome, Jews were able to have this protected time, but you couldn't just start a religion. He's like, listen, Paul's the poster boy of this unaffiliated, unattached new religious group. He calls them the Nazarenes, right? He's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Nazarenes was another label given to the early church. Stems back because Jesus came from Nazareth. Remember when people heard about Jesus coming from Nazareth? Remember what they said? Yeah, what good? Could anything come out of Nazareth? It's like if a president was running for president and he grew up in Barstow, we'd all be like, what? (laughs) Like, Barstow? It's the same type of thing. You're like, oh, Brian or Felix, he's a ringleader of these people Nazarenes. We all know nothing good comes from Nazareth. Bunch of no good, nobodies. Nothing but trouble is going to come from this. First thing, they say, he's a plague. He's a virus. He's a threat. First to Rome. Felix, this guy's going around trying to talk people into revolting against you, and he got a band of nobodies. Good for nothing's behind him. But he's also plagued to another group. Look at verse 6. He even tried to desecrate the temple. The term desecrate, term means Paul defiled the temple, violated its rules, profaned its importance. Not only is he an enemy to Rome, he's an enemy to Jews. Man, he's just trying to conquer everybody. He's trying to just stir up trouble. He's a plague. He's a nuisance. We need to exterminate this guy. story continues, middle of verse 6. It says this, we wanted to judge him according to our own law. Hey, Felix, we're trying to do you a favor. I know you're busy. So we're trying to handle this ourselves. But Lysias, the commander, came along and with much violence took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you. By examining him yourself concerning all these matters, you will be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also joined in the attack, asserting these things were so. So the attorney of Ananias, the high priest, comes and says, hey, we're going to handle this for you. We hate to bother you with little things. This is so obvious. We're just going to handle it ourselves. But your commander, your Roman soldier, kept rescuing him from us. So now we're here before you. I want to make a little interesting note in some of your Bibles, the second half of verse six through seven, through the first t- part of verse eight, you might see little brackets around. It might have an asterisk. It might have a little note off to the side. Some of your Bibles not, may not even have that part in your Bible. So let me make a note. See what happened early in the early manuscripts, there, that section from the second half of verse six through the first part of verse eight isn't found. So what most people think happened is you have a scribe. Back then they didn't have printers. Back then they didn't have the printing press, right? So they had guys actually write out Bible by hand. But you're lucky, we're not in those days. My handwriting's awful. So at times, these scribes tried to add some notes to make sure that we understood the heart behind Ananias and the people. So what, we, what most people think is there is a well-intended scribe later on in the process added that little section. And when people hear that, they're like, what? Like there's parts added to the Bible? Like how can I have, ever have confidence in the Bible? Like now, how do we know other stuff isn't added? How do we know other stuff isn't deleted? How can we have confidence in Scripture? So let me just make a little comment. We have thousands of Greek manuscripts And roughly like 98, 98 98.5% of them say the exact same thing. Accents, word uses, spelling. Like there's actually something where one scribe misspelled a word. And then there's a number of manuscripts afterwards. People misspelled the same word. Like they were so focused and committed to writing every little piece of Scripture the same because they understood its importance. Rarely, very rarely, there'll be a time to where a scribe usually adds a little piece or deletes a little piece to add clarity. Never do those little moments of rarity change the meaning of the text, the direction of God. So you can have confidence in your scripture. You can have confidence in the Bible. And I love the fact that the New American Standard and most other Bibles actually add that note. Man, they are so confident that this does not erode. Confidence in scripture, relax. You can trust the Bible. At the end of this first section, the lawyer represents their complaint to Felix. Paul's a nuisance. He's a pest. He's a virus. He's a plague. He is a risk to the very humanity and and institution of Rome and Jew. We need to get rid of him. He needs to be exterminated. And we would have handled it for you, Felix, except your boy over here kept rescuing him from us. God knows we tried three times. In fact, we had a whole group over here ready to just assassinate him But now he's here. So Felix, we leave it to you. Excellent Felix, you're so smart, good looking, so busy, doing good work. You need to get rid of Paul. I was thinking as I was reading that, I was reminded, you know, Jesus made similar promises to his disciples. Like this shouldn't have been a shock to Paul and I don't think it was. Listen to some of the things Jesus, Jesus told his disciples. This is Matthew chapter 5. Listen to what he said early in his ministry. It's from the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most famous sermons of Jesus. Right? He said, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Anyone feel blessed during those times? I've been falsely accused. I don't feel blessed. Jesus telling his disciples, Blessed are you! Rejoice and be glad! Woohoo! For your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who are before you. Look what he said a few chapters later, Matthew chapter 10, she said, You'll be hated by all because of my name. It's the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Listen, everyone who wants to be a people pleaser in America, there's a reality. Man, people are going to hate you because of what you stand for, because you stand for Christ. Why does Jesus know that? Because they hated him. He healed people, they hated him. He fed people, they hated him. He forgave people's sins. He gave them freedom beyond what anyone else, any earthly human institution can give, and yet they hated him. Look at the Gospel of John recorded, Jesus saying. John 15 says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. I mean, time after time, Jesus is warning his disciples, listen, not everyone's going to love you. People are going to spread lies about you. People are going to try to undermine you. People are going to try to persecute you because of who you're committed to. If you live a life reflective of Jesus, don't be surprised if. Paul said the same thing to his young protege, Timothy, 2 Timothy. Look what he says. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Wasn't just Paul. Wasn't just Jesus. Look at what the Apostle Peter said, 1 Timothy 3.14. Oh, that's right. Thank you, Daniel. We're supposed to turn there. So put your thumb in axe. I get all fired up. I forget these things. Put your thumb in axe. Flip over to the far right of your Bibles. The book of uh, 1 Peter, chapter 3. 1 Peter, almost to the very end of the Bible. 1 Peter, chapter 3. Verse 14, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14, look what Peter says to the early church, who is in the midst of being persecuted, by the way. Peter says this, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. Don't fear their intimidation, do not be troubled. Right before that, verse 13, look, he says, who is there to harm you? if you prove zealous for what is good. Throughout Scripture, there's a directive, there's a, there's a teaching, there's an expectation, there's an understanding. Be ready for accusation. It's a first reminder for our lives. Be ready for accusation. Count on it. Well, Brian, we're in a Christian nation. I just want to warn you. I just want to prepare you. Be ready for accusation. If you stand for morality in your business, and it's going to cost the owner money out of honesty and faithfulness, be ready for accusation. If your spouse does something horrible, all the world's going to tell you to leave him, to forsake him, that God came to a work of rebuilding and restoring And if you in your heart feel like God is saying, no, God wants to do a work in my marriage, be ready for an accusation. Be ready for people to not agree when all the world goes to cancel this person for something you agree with or don't agree with and you still choose to love them and respect them and have dialogue with them. Be ready for people to say things about you. Be ready for trial. Be ready for accusation. First thing we see in Paul's life, be ready. Be ready to be accused. Be ready for accusation. But that leads us to the second point. Brian, what are we supposed to do? If people are spreading lies about us, if people are persecuting us, live with hope and a clear conscience. We're still in the book of 1 Peter chapter 3. Look at what Peter says directly after he says, verse 14, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. Look at verse 15, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Hey, if they're coming at you with vitriol and hatred, you don't get to respond to them the same way. Always be prepared to give a response, but with gentleness and reverence. Look at verse 16 and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it's better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. You want a great example of First Peter 3? I wonder when Peter writes that, if he's thinking about Paul. Paul before Felix. Listen to Paul's response. Let's go back now to Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24, Paul has just been sitting there, likely rolling his eyes. I, I, I've never met the Apostle Paul. I hope to someday in eternity, but I'm telling you, he was sitting there like, oh, brother. This guy's lying about him, all these accusations against him. Look at verse 10. When the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded. I'm in Acts 24, verse 10, knowing that for many years, this is Paul's words now, knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. All those accusations they're making against me, I've just been in town 12 days. How could I be doing all this in less than two weeks? Neither in the temple nor in the synagogues nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot for 12 days. Nothing happened. Nor can they prove to you the charges which they accuse of me now. They can't prove any of this. Look at verse 14. But, big biblical but right there, but this I admit to you, According to the way which they call a sect, I do do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that's in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before God and before men." Now after several years, I've come to bring alms to my nation and present offerings in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. But there were some Jews from Asia out of town who ought to have been present before you to make an accusation if they should have anything against me. Listen, they ran away. Why? Because they're lying. Verse 20, or else let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council. Other than for this one statement, should I shout it out while standing before them, for the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. I love Paul's response. He looks at Felix in the eye and says, listen, I'm not guilty of anything they're saying. Let them try and prove it. Paul says, but if I am guilty of anything, I'm an instrument of God. If I'm guilty of anything, I'm an instrument of God. Look back up at verse 15. He says, Listen, I live. Listen how he describes his life. I live having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. I have this hope in God. I have this viewpoint that this is not the end of everything, that this life that we see, that my big home and my nice cars and my successful kids, that's not the end of life. There's going to come a point to where I am brought up to answer before the God of all creation. Paul says, I live in a hope of that. Everything else here is going to burn. I have this hope of the resurrection of the dead. For the righteous and the wicked, Paul in another section of Scripture would say this: I, Jesus came, and Paul said, I'm convinced every knee will bow, And every tongue will confess, either in humility or rebellion, but everyone will recognize him. Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul said, If I'm guilty of anything, I'm guilty of being an instrument of God. I love how he said it in Galatians chapter 2. I put it up here on the screen. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul says, listen, Felix, if I'm guilty of anything, it's because I trust God over you. If I'm guilty of anything, as I live my life in the hope of the resurrection in knowledge that I'm going to face Jesus someday. And that's the basis and the foundation of how I live my life. What a great model for us. It's so easy to get hung up and caught up on politics of our state, of our community, of our nation, calamity of the world, as if this is what it's all about. This isn't what it's all about. I'm convinced that's why Jesus, when they said, teach us how to pray, Jesus started it all. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Man, it's a reminder for us. This is not what it's about. But there's one other thing I want you to notice that Paul said, how he lives his life. Hey, if I'm guilty of anything... I live as an instrument of God. And look how he defines it more in verse 16. He says this, in view of this, because I'm an instrument of God, because I am an emissary of the kingdom of God, I also do my best. Doesn't claim perfection, but he does claim focus. I do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and before man. That term blameless term means he has no remorse, void of offense, faultless in how he treats others. And we talked last week of how Paul said he could do that before God. He said, I believe that Jesus already paid the consequence of my failures. I have confidence in my blamelessness before God. But Paul says this, I work hard to be blameless before men. I work hard that if people come and persecute me, it's not going to be for tax evasion. It's not going to be because I've caused a riot, abuse my wife. It's not going to be for any of those things. If they come to get me, if I end up going to jail, it's going to be because of my life for Christ. Look how he says it in Philippians 2. He says this, Philippians 2, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, above reproach. Love that. People can't even make an accusation against you. You live a life so committed to purity that people won't even believe it when someone talks to you, talk about you. He says, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. We are not the first Christians living in a kooky culture. Paul directs Christians back then, modeled it in his life. And Scripture directs us today, live your life in such a way that if they persecute you, it's for righteousness. But work hard to be blameless before men. Don't grumble. Quit complaining. (coughs) Be a light in the midst of this kooky, crazy culture that God might be glorified. Paul's defense is simple. Search me and find my crime. I have nothing to hide. And if you do find anything, I guarantee you it's because you and Jesus disagree. That's Paul's defense. Look at Felix' response, verse 22. But Felix, having a more exact knowledge about the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the commander, comes down, I'll decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion for him to keep him in custody and yet have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. So in other words, Felix says, I'm not going to do anything about this, but I can't send him back. So he gave him a set up a little Airbnb there in his governor's mansion. Great food, private chef, freedom, police escort. You have access to an office, let your friends come and go as they please. I mean, Paul ends up having this totally awesome experience right there in the governor's mansion of ministry. Now, I'm not saying that, I mean, Paul's not pleased. Paul's still a prisoner, but he's a prisoner of comfort. God is meeting his needs, providing for him and bringing safety. Two things we can learn from Paul's life. Number one, be ready for accusation. Don't be surprised when they come after you. But live with hope and a clear conscience. Man, if they come after you, make sure you have a life that if they complain about anything, it's because they disagree with Jesus. But there's one last thing I want you to see. Look at verse 24. After all this is said and done, but some days later, Felix arrived at Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewish, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ. But also, as he's discussing righteousness, self control, the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, Go away from the present uh, for the present, and when I have time, I will summon you. At the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given to him by Paul. Therefore, he, would, he used to send for him quite often and converse with him. Here's the situation there must have been something going on. So Felix and his wife come and talk to Paul. There's something you need to know about these two characters. You already know about Felix. Here's Drusilla. Drusilla's great-grandfather was King Herod, who tried to kill Jesus when he was born. Remember that story? Her great-uncle was the one who killed John the Baptist and mocked Jesus. I mean, she comes from a history of people that aren't super happy about Jesus and the way so Paul's under house arrest. Here comes Felix, who, isn't, who is known as trying to blot out any indiscretion. Drusilla, who is against the way historically through her family. And they come and start having conversations. Verse 25 says he's, they're discussing. They're having give and take. They're having conversation. There's Paul with the governor of all of Judea and his way-hating wife. Having discussions about the gospel. And look how Paul, Paul gets right to it. He says, listen, they're discussing righteousness, the standard of God. They're discussing self-control. How despite our best efforts, we are unable to reach the standard of God on our own. I was thinking this week, I wonder if Paul shared with Felix what he shared at the church of Rome. Look what he said in Romans chapter seven. He said this, says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. The good that I want, I don't do, but I practice the very evil that I don't want to do. He goes on, he says this, but if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Later, Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am, who can save me? Paul's having this discussion with Felix. Listen, here's the standard God desires and expects. Here's our best. He talks about righteousness, self-control, our inability to meet that standard. And look what next. And the judgment to come that all of us are going to face God and we're going to get the consequences of our sin. I'm convinced Paul would share this verse. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And look Felix's response. See, we expect him. We expect him to, to respond and say, oh my gosh, how can I be saved? In the interest of time, we won't turn there, but isn't that what Philippian jailer remembered chapters before? He was afraid. He was frightened. And that Philippian jailer said, oh my gosh, how do I get saved? Look at Felix's response. He was frightened. The Greek term, he was trembling. He was shaking. He definitely understood the gospel and the judgment of God. He was sitting there having a panic attack right there at the moment. And we're expecting to say, okay, Felix, do it, do it. Receive the grace of God, be reconciled. But Felix ran from it. Go away. I'll talk to you again. We see he had a number of conversations with Paul. I wonder how many times he panicked, how many times he freaked out, how many times he struggled, how many times he knew in his heart he needed to reconcile with God and chose not to. Look how it ends, verse 27. After two years had passed, this is going on for two years. Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus and wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Paul left, Felix left Paul in that situation for two years and they constantly had these conversations, often, and were left to believe that Felix died in opposition to God. That's what leads to my third point of how we can apply this message. Third point is this, respond when God calls. Felix didn't. Two years, he had consistent communication with the greatest evangelist and preacher known to man. And he rejected it every time. And most people believe Felix died in opposition to God. You don't have to. I was reminded this week of something I was reading in Hebrews recently. It said this, Hebrews 3. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Man, don't be like the Jews when they're walking through the desert. They know God's talking. They can see the pillar of fire, the pillar of smoke. They know God's at work and they chose to harden their heart and do their own thing. So I just want to encourage you, if you're here today and you've yet to be reconciled to God, maybe you've been here a couple times and you feel like God is calling you. The fear of judgment continues to weigh down your heart. But you've never had the guts or the courage to step forward and reach out to Jesus. Today, you can be reconciled to Jesus. But before we do that, I want to show you one more thing. See, Hebrews continues. Look at what it says, verse 12 and 13. It says, therefore, I was angry with this generation. Oh, next verse, Danny. Take care, brethren, that there not be any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God but encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. As written to Christians. Man, some of us have sin that consistently erodes our soul and can lead us away. Wouldn't be the first time, Paul says, there's many people who have shipwrecked their faith So some of you might be here and say, Brian, I think it's time that I'm reconciled to God. Like I have felt that anxiety. I have felt that tug in my heart. It's time to get things right with God. I'd love to do that today, but I think some of you also have this sin that's been eroding your family. It's been eating away at your soul. Don't let that go. because this stuff can just lead and guide you away, harden your heart, and deaden you to the work of the Spirit in your life. My question for you, how do you need to respond to Jesus? See, I think the most tragic part of this story isn't the false accusations against Paul, but the fact that when it's all said and done, Felix still died separated from God. How will you respond today? Let's pray. Jesus, many of us are here today because we do believe in your name. We believe in the truth of salvation. And we have experienced the your power in our lives, restoring our families, reaching our children, transforming our hearts. God, we've experienced you and we acknowledge that and we're here because of it. But God, many of us need to confess there's still an aspect of sin that continues to erode in our heart, a need for control. God, this heart of greed and lust anger. God, we bring our failures to you. God, you said that we can come boldly to your throne. That Jesus is there interceding for us. Jesus who understands he's been tempted in every way that we are. But yet he didn't sin but he is there ready to show us grace and help when we need it. So God, I pray as we're reaching out to you, calling for help, we pray, God, that you would forgive our sins. And God, we commit that we will work hard to forgive those who have sinned against us. God, I also pray for people here who have yet to be reconciled to you. People who still know that they are cut off from you, separated from you and God, yet they still come. Waiting for this opportunity that they would have the guts where you would call them and they would be able to respond. Jesus, you left heaven to take on the form of your own creation, to die on the cross, to pay for our sins so that we would have this opportunity today. So God, if there's people here who have yet to be reconciled to you, I pray, God, that you give them the courage and humility to respond to you today. God, the questions that they still have in their head, God, may you give them boldness to continue to share those with you. God, you're far beyond our questions. Give them faith to submit to you even when they don't fully understand you. God, and as they share their failures and their brokenness before you, God, I pray that you would forgive them as you've promised. Restore the joy of their salvation. Renew their spirit. Refresh their life. Guide them in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Jesus, may you give them the Holy Spirit as you've promised, that a peace that's beyond human comprehension would flood their soul and their life as they seek to honor you from this day forward. Jesus, whether we're giving ourselves you for the first time or the last time, we ask God that you hear our prayer, transform our hearts, renew our minds, Open our mouths that we might proclaim your glory and worship your greatness. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.